0: Good stuff. All right, so we've got to move this morning, and there's a reason why. I was going to take the time to point out that Obi Green, that's the son of Jonathan and Ashley, like he ran in the state finals for cross country on Saturday, which is kind of a neat feat for somebody from Eastern to be in the state finals. Um, But he didn't win, and so since he didn't win, I don't really feel obligated to say anything about it. (laughs) Maybe try a little bit harder, Obi. Uh anyway, that's the way we do it here at Jerome. We accept only excellence. All right, so the reason why we've got I'm just kidding, Toby, it was wonderful. Great job. Where is is he here? Oh yeah, there you are. Great job. Yeah. Hey, that's good. That's good. All right. Uh so here's why we got a move this morning, because somebody last week did the unthinkable, and it's wonderful for me, maybe not so great for you. They asked a question for this series you ask for it that combined three things. Combined history, current events, and the Bible. Okay, you can't beat that for me, and so what I have prepared this morning may well go until four o'clock in the afternoon, but it's going to be dynamite. So we're going to jump into it this morning. I'm excited about this. This was the question that was asked this last week. With everything going on in Israel right now, of course we're aware of what's going on in the news and all that, is this the end of the world? All right, That is a question that I love to talk about the apocalypse and my prophecy and all of this. Is this the end of the world and is this Israel that we're hearing about, talked about in the news, is that the same Israel as existed in Bible times? In other words, is the nation of Israel of Moses the same as the nation of Israel of Benjamin Netanyahu? Is Benjamin Netanyahu the modern version of Moses? Is that the same nation that we're talking about? And if so, it would seem that Christians should always support Israel in all things. All right, so let's dive into this one. First of all, I see three questions here. Number one, is this the end of the world? Number two, is this the same Israel? And number three, should Christians always support Israel because they are God's people and that's where Christians want to be? There is so much information out there these days. You have access to the internet and that's a good thing because you can research this stuff and find out and that's great, but it's also a bad thing because there's a lot of bad information out there and so sometimes you don't know exactly what to trust. There were a lot of people, October 7th attack, Israel's 9-11, if you want to call it that. Uh, After that, they were posting on social media things like Psalm 122.8, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then you'd see other people comment underneath and would say, well, technically, well, actually, this isn't the same Israel, and so we're not really bound to pray for... First of all, what is wrong with you people? Obviously, it's always good to pray. It is always good to pray for peace. And it certainly is good to pray for peace in the chaos that is the Middle East and has been since Jesus was here. So, of course, we should be praying for Israel. But what about these specific questions that were posed? Is this the same Israel? Is this the end of the world? All of that. First of all, What's going to happen now, we're going to dive into history. So what I'm going to need from you, since this is what I do during the week, just to make me feel at home. I need about 85% of you to be on your phones and pay no attention to me whatsoever. Alright? <laughs> then I need another handful of you to be looking at me almost as though you're plotting my death. And every so often, you'll, you'll get an idea and you'll write it down. I need that and then somebody here has to have some sort of digestive problem that they have to go to the bathroom seven or eight times in the period of 50 minutes. If you do that for me, this is going to work out really well. All right, so here we go. This is going to be a simplified Cliff's Notes version of what has happened in the Middle East and what is happening. So we got to go back in history. You with me? Yes? We're going to do this. All right, leading up to World War I, we're going to start in about 1500, so about 400 years, this part of the world that we call Israel. The part of the world where Moses was and the children of Israel, that's the promised land, the land of Canaan, they come across. Okay, that part of the world for 400 years, 1500 to World War I was 1914 to 1918. In between that time, that part of the world was governed and controlled by this empire called the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turks. Modern day Turkey is what we call it. It's the same thing, the Ottoman Empire and Turkey They control this part of the world. I'm going to show you a map of it in just a second. But while they ruled it, the Turks are Muslims. And so they encourage Muslims to move into that part of the world. From Syria in the north and from Egypt in the south. So for 400 years, did you see how that dropped down like a drape? I'm going to do that again. Because some of my favorite... Oh, there it flipped back up. And now... there it is. Okay, what is shaded in brown, now this crosses 400 some years, and so part of this territory they'll lose, and then part of it they'll gain again. Oh, it's up there too. So the brown stuff, that is the part of the world that the Ottoman Empire controlled, the Turks. And you will notice right here is what we call modern Israel. You've got Jerusalem right there. It is controlled by the Muslim Turks. And so they're encouraging from Syria and from Egypt... Muslims to flood into this area. Those Muslims will have babies. Those babies will grow up and have babies, and they'll all be raised in Islam. Those individuals, those families, they are the ancestors of the people who now live in that part of the world who call themselves Palestinians. You follow me? Okay, so these are the... Uh, the these are the ancestors, we'll go with that word, of the modern Palestinians, the Muslims that had moved into that area. All right, you're still with me, yes? After World War I, the Turks are done ruling that part of the world. And they hand it over to this international governing body called the League of Nations. Now, one of the members of the League of Nations was Great Britain. And they turned to Great Britain and say, we don't want to deal with this part of the world anymore. You guys have a powerful military. You control it. So Britain sets up a government there in that part of the world and they call it the British Protectorate of Palestine. And they will rule that area from 1918, the end of World War I, all the way through World War II. All right, we remember World War II. Yes, Adolf Hitler, he takes over the face of Europe, you're with me, and you know what Hitler's final solution was. He goes into all of the European countries, he takes the Jews from uh, Austria, and the Jews from Poland, and the Jews from Yugoslavia, and the Jews from Germany, and he puts them on rail cars, and he sends them to concentration camps to eliminate the Jewish people. That happens in World War II. At the end of World War II, and that's what you're supposed to be doing there, the UN, which is now taken over for the League of Nations, the United United Nations decide all of those Jews that have been displaced from their homes, that have been thrown into these concentration camps, whose homes have been destroyed in the war, they need their own homeland. And what better place to send them than their ancestral homeland, the the land of Abraham and Isaac, that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the land of Israel, There are already Jews who live there amongst Muslims. We will send these displaced Jews to that area. That's what the UN decides. So in 1947, the UN then divides that land. This is post-World War II. Some of you, your eyes are glossing over. You're losing it. I'm throwing you back into high school. But come on, people, stay with me. The UN divides this land, and you can see the colors. They divide this territory of modern Israel. The blue is where the Jews will be. And they're partitioned off from the Muslims, those descendants of the people that had migrated there. The people who now call themselves Palestinians. And they will be in the orange, is that orange, is that brown? brown. It's orange. Okay, so you're wrong. It's orange. Okay, so it's burnt orange is what it is. We'll, we'll agree to disagree. So that's where they're going to be. That's the way they partitioned it in 1947. All right. The Jews are thrilled about this. They're getting to go home. This is their, their, their homeland. And they've got a home and a state to call their own. The Arab nations are seething. There's no greater enemy to the Muslim than the Jew. And so now all of these Jews are coming into territory that they have held and they believe is rightfully theirs. For 400 years they've been living here. And yes, there have been some Jews there. But now all of these new Jews are going to be coming in and they don't like it. So when the British withdraw in 1948, what happens? The state of Israel is born, the modern state of Israel that we now call that country of Israel is born in 1948 and the Arab neighbors, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, they attack. They attack Israel, they want to get rid of the Jews, get them out of there. Immediately they attack them. Now Israel successfully defends itself and they come up with two territorial arrangements at the end of that conflict and these are the two here on the map. This portion of Israel, this is Jordan right here, a Muslim nation. This part, called the West Bank, is going to be controlled by Muslim Jordan. They will control this area. Notice how Jerusalem is going to be split between the two. In blue, that's the state of Israel. And then you've got this little land down here, this little strip, southern strip called Gaza. And right there, Egypt, the Muslim neighbor down here, will rule Gaza. You still with me? Okay, one person is... Come on, people. All right, so that's what's going on, and that's what we've got now in 1948, and it will stay that way. Now we're gonna fast forward to 1967. Egypt has been plotting this with all of its Arab neighbors. Egypt attacks Israel. For once and for all, they are going to eradicate the Jews. They're gonna wipe them off the face of the earth, finish what Hitler started and get rid of the nation of Israel. And Egypt thinks they're strong enough to do it. This conflict becomes known as the six-day war... ...because six days is all it took for Israel to wax all of their neighbors. All those people that attacked them, Israel, armed by the United States armed by Britain, took it to them. And not only did they defend their land, they took a bunch of other stuff at at the same time. They took the West Bank from Jordan, said, we'll take that. And then they took Gaza from Egypt, we'll take that, and we're not stopping. They go on down into Egypt, and that entire Sinai Peninsula between Egypt and Israel, where Moses got the Ten Commandments, Israel takes that too. They... They didn't start the war, but they finished that war, and they finished it in six days. So that's what happened. Eventually, in the name of peace, Israel will give back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. Egypt then says, we don't want Gaza. You govern Gaza. We're out. We're done with all of that. So now we fast forward to the presidency of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush some of these Western leaders of the United States began pushing and lobbying Israel in the name of peace. If you want to make sure that there's peace here permanently, then the Palestinians need their own country, and you have your own country. They called it the two-state solution, and then everybody will be happy. Everybody will have their own piece of land, and everybody will be satisfied. And enough pressure over time in 2005, Israel said fine, and they gave up the Gaza Strip. They turned over that southern part of Israel to the Palestinian people and say, you govern this now. This is your country. They still permitted Gazans to come across the border into Israel and work and then go back, but this is now your territory. In the name of peace, that's what we're doing. And the very next year in 2006, the Palestinian people elect, they choose democratically, a radical Islamist group called Hamas to lead them. That becomes the government government. ...of the Gaza Strip, of the Palestinians. Now, what we know about Hamas, they are primarily funded by Iran, which is a terror-sponsoring state. Hamas's own charter, their constitution, calls for the absolute destruction and eradication of the Jews... ...to fulfill Hitler's vision of wiping out the Jews. In their charter, they say, we love death more than Israel loves life. They are willing to do anything to destroy Israel, and as we have seen, Hamas uses Islamist tactics you remember ISIS, they use those tactics to get what it is that they want. They do not view Israeli citizens and civilians any differently than armies of Israel. If you are a Jew, you are the enemy. You might as well have a weapon fighting against them. You are a target. This is very important that you hear me say this, okay? Not every Palestinian is a a fan of Hamas, In fact, there are many of them that are not. In fact, there are hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are Christians, and they are suffering under the leadership of Hamas. Okay, so that I I need you to understand that some of the people who are living in the area that Israel is now attacking to get back for what happened to them. Some of them are our brothers and sisters that you are technically closer to and you should have more feelings and, and sympathy and love for than you have for all of these other people around you at work on a daily basis. You are closer related to them that are suffering there. Under this, this regime of Hamas. They just happen to be living in Palestine. There are Muslims over there as well who do not agree with Hamas, they do not approve of Hamas, but they're outnumbered. They don't have the ability to overthrow Hamas, and so they are living under their thumb. Without warning, we now know a couple years in planning with Iran, on October 7th, Hamas comes across the border of Gaza and they launched this brutal, horrific attack called Israel's 9-11 on October 7th. They massacre massacre over a thousand Israeli civilians. These are not armed soldiers. These are families in their homes. And I'm not going to detail everything that they do, but they savagely behead babies. They will live stream executions. The- of elderly people, log on to their Facebook account, turn on a Facebook live video, and massacre that individual in front of all of their friends on Facebook. This is the nature of the Islamist regime that is Hamas. And the state of Israel has now declared war on Hamas and pledged that they will eradicate them from the face of the earth. Here's what I need you to understand. There is no way around this. That action, Israel may be successful. They are determined and they have always proven themselves to be pretty serious when they say they're going to do something. They may be successful in eradicating Hamas, but that will not happen without extensive loss of life and innocent loss of life. And we know that because of how Hamas defends itself. These are images we now have. Hamas, to protect themselves, the, the soldiers go into tunnels underground, these are their rocket launchers. This is within the range. Of, uh, ...of a mosque. So if Israel bombs this missile launcher... ...they will have destroyed a mosque... ...which will then be publicized... ...Oh, Israel's attacking our holy sites. This is a children's playground... That's where a missile launcher is. If Israel destroys the missile launcher, now it becomes public. Oh, Israel has obliterated our children. They're attacking our children. In other words, Hamas, one of their tactics is to hide behind civilians. Okay, that's a hospital up there. In the parking lot of a hospital, they put a missile launcher. This one down here is a cemetery. They put missile launchers there. This is what Israel is facing. And so Israel has said, we're going to do it. We're going to wipe them out. This is on Hamas. It's not on us. This is going to lead to extensive suffering in that part of the world. All right, you still with me? That's what's happened, and that's what's coming. So the question, the original question, does this mean it's the end of the world? Is this the end of the world as we know it? Okay, I will say this. There is nothing wrong. In fact, I think it's good for believers to keep one eye here on earth and one eye in heaven. We know what is coming. We know what's written in scripture. Paul tells us that we eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus. Christ to come back. He says it to the Philippians to uh, eagerly await a Savior. The writer of Hebrews talks with excitement as we see the day approaching when all of this ends. That's great. And as we Christians are doing that, we're keeping one eye on the heavens, awaiting the return of Jesus. We then see what Jesus tells us. Don't flip there. We don't have time for that. I'll read it to you. These are Jesus's words in Matthew 24. He says, many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ will deceive many. Listen to this. You will hear of rumors of wars and Wars, But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Jesus is talking about the end of the world. And so what do we do? As we're cognizant believers, aware of what's going on, we're looking at the world, we're reading the scriptures, and what we see is Matthew 24, and we say, well, this fits. I mean, there was just, it was just an earthquake in Afghanistan, and now we got nations rising against nations, and it's happening in the Middle East, right there where Jesus came the first time. It makes total sense. This could be it. And there's a lot of Christians who believe that to be the case. But look at verse 8, what Jesus says here in Matthew 24, verse 8. After saying all that's going to happen, he goes on and says, All these are the beginning, the beginning of birth pains. He doesn't say it's going to happen right away. He said these are the beginning of birth pains. The fact of the matter is, and I know you're not going to like this, some of you that are eager for the end of the world, but we have extraordinary recency bias. We see these things and we think, well, that fits Scripture. I just need you to understand that for 20 centuries, people have been seeing events around them and saying, well, I see that right there in Scripture. Dr. David Jeremiah is a brilliant biblical mind. And I know a lot of you read him and, and really appreciate it. I do too. I've learned a lot from him. He believes that he's going to see Jesus come back before he dies, and he's what in his 60s or 70s? Which I, I mean, I, I I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is going to come back. But what I need you to understand is there have been Doctor David Jeremiah's in every century since Jesus was first here on Earth. They could be right. I don't know. No man knows the hour, so it may be that all of this is fulfilling what the Bible's talking about, or it may be like it's been for the previous 20 centuries. These are the beginnings. And, and Jesus may tarry for another 2,000 years. I don't know. I just used the word tarry is what I do know. That's not a normal word for me to use, but I just did. All right, so here is what I'm going to suggest to you. When I, I don't mean to rain on anybody's apocalypse parade, okay? I know a lot of you may be excited. You're going to be there and you're going to witness it. You're going to film it on your cell phone and post it to Instagram. Hey, Jesus is back. I don't know if that's what you're counting on. But when I see scripture, here's where I am. When I look at the events of this world, and and I'm not telling you you should be like me. I'm just saying I think this is a healthy response for Christians. We see the events of the world and we're tempted to rush to scripture and make predictions about the end of the world. Here's where I think our testimony should be as believers. We should see what's happening in the world. See what happened to those Jewish families. See what's happening now to the Palestinians who are innocent and don't even like Hamas... But they are facing retribution, just retribution, for what was done to Israel. We should look at the suffering of this world and long for what the prophet Isaiah talked about. When he said there's coming a day when his greatness and his government and peace, there will be no end to that. That's what's coming. That he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Praise God that that's coming. That's what I want to say to the world. It doesn't, It's not always going to be like this. There is coming a day when King Jesus will rule, and it, he's the Prince of Peace, and peace will extend as far as humanity extends. So then, let's combine the next two. question and know 100% that I'm right the best we do is try to be biblical in our responses but I am acknowledging to you that there are people who are smarter than me who are wiser than me who are much more learned when it comes to scriptures that have come to different conclusions than I will my grandpa gene that I look up to he watched John Hagee on TV and he would tell you God's not done with Israel. He's coming back and he's going to use Israel and there are believers who will tell you that Israel in the final days will be given a chance. This country will be given a chance to accept Jesus later. There's all kinds of theories out there. The best I can do is try to be true to the scriptures and I prayed about that this week. I will tell you this, your belief about this is not a salvation issue and there is this idea that we have in Christendom. That on essentials, we must have unity. Non-essentials, which is where I would put this, then there has to be liberty. In other words, you have to allow Christians to have different views on things without telling them that they're not Christians. In all things, charity. We are charitable towards our fellow believers. I'm charitable towards Dr. David Jeremiah, even though I don't agree with him on this issue. So let's try our best. I want you to flip right now to the 11th chapter of Romans. That's the text for the morning. I have now completed my introduction. Chapter 11, I'm kind of kidding. Chapter 11, this is going to be, and I'm telling you right now, Romans is not an easy book to read anyway. This is going to, when I read this, I, I want you to power through. I am fully anticipating that when you hear this, you're going to be like, I, I don't know what that means. What time is lunch? What, when are we getting? I really think that that's the way you're going to be. But then we're going to do an analogy together, and I've illustrated something, and I think it's going to come to life for you. All right? So those of you who are still awake, it's going to be dynamite. All right. So chapter 11, and I want to start in verse 13. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Remember, you are going to power through this with me, and then we're going to make it, I hopefully, makes sense. All right, look at verse 13. I am talking to you Gentiles, Paul says. By the way, who are the Gentiles? They're the non-Jews. It's us. It's all of those people who had come to faith in Christ who were not Jewish people. All right, so uh, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Paul is a Jew, And he's saying, in my ministry to the Gentiles, I'm wanting to make the Jews jealous of what I'm preaching to the Gentiles so that they will want that too. They've rejected Jesus, but I want them to want the same thing. Verse 15, for if their rejection, the rejection of the Jews, is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered at first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. All right, now here's where Paul's going to start with this analogy of a tree. Some of you are not trying very hard to stay with me. Look at the text and focus, all right? Verse 17, if some of the branches of this tree have been broken off and you, you Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others, you've been attached to the tree, you now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches that have been broken off laying on the ground. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, you Gentiles, but the root, the Jewish root, supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. All right, granted, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid, for if God did not spare the natural branches, these Jews, he will not spare you either for unbelief. Verse 22, consider their Kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? How far did you make it before you fell asleep? All right, here's what we're going to do. All right? I am going to now put on the screen a tree. This is we're going to walk through this together and I need you to stay here. Thousands of years ago, God planted a tree. That's the analogy that Paul uses, so therefore that's the analogy we are going to use. This is our tree. It's a lovely tree, isn't it? And at the root of this tree, we're going to put this guy named Abraham. Do you remember, it's been a couple of years ago when I did a Christmas series, and the very first message I said, the real story of Christmas starts when God makes a promise to Abraham that through him and his descendants, all people everywhere will be blessed. Well, who's he talking about? Jesus, one person, knew that it was Jesus who was going to bless all people. And he's a former minister. Come on, people. Anyway, right. So, okay. So God is going to bless all people through Abraham. Abraham is the start of all of this. I'm going to dim the tree now so we can make some points. And dim. Good. Abraham and his descendants will create a massive tree that has 12 huge branches. The 12, you know this, right? Abraham and Sarah, they have Isaac. And Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau. And Jacob's name gets changed by God to Israel. Yeah, now you're tracking with me. And Israel will have 12 sons, will become the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the 12 branches. So when I bring the tree back, imagine in your mind that it has 12 healthy branches, the kinds that you attach swings to, and you jump on, and everything's fine. Healthy branches of this tree. All right, and it grows and it spreads, this tree, for 2,000 years. God protects it. Satan tries to set it on fire. Satan tries to break branches off of it. But through Esther and through all of these other people, God will protect this tree. He will guard this tree. He will nourish this tree. And then 2,000 years later, something wild is going to happen. The root and the major branches remain on that tree, but they will produce something unbelievably special. The tree will produce the long-awaited Messiah. His name is Jesus. That's what the tree was there for. It was there to grow and be cultivated and eventually produce out of it. The lineage would go down and out on one of the branches. Here comes the Messiah, the branch of Judah. All the way down, the Lion of Judah is born. He is produced from this tree. All right? That's him, the Lion of Judah. That is what came out of the tree. All right, you're with me, yes? All right, now watch very carefully. I'm going to dim the cross. And what happens? According to Paul, there are a lot of Jews... A lot of Jewish people that were born of Abraham, they were one of Abraham's descendants, they're out here on the branches, they see this Jesus, this Messiah, and they don't accept him. They don't believe that he is the Messiah, so what happens to them? Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, yep, they're dropping off, they're being cut off, that's what Paul says. They rejected Jesus, the whole point of this tree was to bring about the Messiah. They have rejected the Messiah, they are now no longer part of the tree. So God sees these holes in this tree that he's created. And he looks out into the distance and he sees these wild offshoots, these wild olive trees. The Gentiles... And he says, if my Jewish people don't want me, I'm going to find the Gentiles and bring them in into the tree. You see how? He's taking Gentiles and he's grafting them into the tree. I told you this is a dynamite analogy and you are loving it, okay? So now you've got this whole tree that has been filled by original Jews and now you have all of these offshoots, these Gentiles that have been grafted in. I'll walk you through it. The original trunk and the branches, that was Old Testament Israel. The transformation began with the appearance of the Messiah the branches that fell off were the Israelites who rejected Jesus they dropped off onto the ground and that's what Paul's saying to the here do you remember when I said this he says to the the Gentiles don't stand over the broken off branches and boast you would not be here if it wasn't for that tree God, he mourns over those that have been broken off. But he's serious. They can be grafted in. If he took you, a wild Gentile shoot, and grafted you into this tree, do you not think he's going to take them if they want it and put them right back into this tree? It's up to them. All right, so that's what he's saying. Okay, now the new branches that are grafted on from these wild olive trees, those are the Gentiles. That's us. And we have been built into this original tree of God, which means that is the church of Jesus Christ. That is the way the church looks. It is the original root system established through Abraham that then had all of these Gentile shoots grafted onto them, and that's the modern church today. Now, some people, by the way, will call this a replacement theology. Replacement theology is the idea that Israel no longer is God's people, but the church is God's people. Eh, okay, you can call it that. There's a better word for it. Dr. Jack Cottrell calls it transformation theology. It's not that the Jews have been cut off. The Jews who believe are still a very important part of that tree. But the tree has been transformed because of Jesus. Now, when you go back and read that passage in Romans, and I'm not going to do it right now for the sake of time, but you read those same verses with that analogy in mind, and I think it's going to make total sense to you. This is why I'm confident in this conclusion. Old Testament Israel is the trunk and the big branches that God took care of for a couple thousand years, not for the sake of nothing. He did it for a purpose. And what was the purpose of protecting Israel? That purpose was to bring about the Messiah. That's why Israel was guarded and protected and special and set apart for 2,000 years because God was implementing a plan to redeem all mankind through the coming and the line of Judah of the Messiah. It's exactly what Paul says in Acts. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. He has what? He has fulfilled. The purpose of Israel has been Fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah. Got it? Once Jesus had come, there was no longer a special role for Israel to play. They are being retired. They have served faithfully in the army, a dishonorable discharge, and you will be forever remembered for your great service because you brought about exactly what God wanted, which was the coming of the Messiah. And it was signified by the tearing of the temple veil. You remember that when Jesus dies, yes? When Jesus dies, that temple veil that separated normal human beings from the presence of God, ripped in two. In other words, it's no longer necessary for a Jewish high priest from this original tree to intercede between God and us. Now all men have access to the throne room of God because the great high priest Jesus has ripped it and we are now able to enter in. And somebody's excited and it's getting me excited. All right. Now his plan has been worked through Israel and it is complete. That's what Jesus meant when he says it is accomplished. It is finished. The whole plan has been implemented and it is now donezo. It's over. I have finished all of it. And what that means then is this. The modern state of Israel is not part of God's tree. Not, it, it, there's no point for it to be part of God's tree. It serves no special purpose as the ancient nation of Israel did. Which means modern ethnic Jews... They are one of two groups of people. They are either converted to Christianity, and therefore they have been grafted back into the tree, and they are part of God's family again, or, what are they? They are unbelieving and no part of that tree. They have been cut off. The fact that they wear the name of Israel does not put them in the tree. There is one way to be in the tree, and that is to wear the name of Jesus. And if Israel does that, then Israel will be part of the tree. If not... Their special role ended when Jesus finished all things. God's plan for Israel was finished when Jesus entered the world. His coming, as as Paul says, fulfilled the covenant that he made with ancient Israel, which is what you see in Romans 11. Now, does God obviously desire for all of those ethnic Jews to become believers? Of course he does. That's what Paul's talking about. He wants them. How much more would he want them to become part of the original tree? But they do so through Jesus alone not through any modern ethnic state that we may create through the United Nations. That's not how they see, it. that's what Paul means. He writes to the Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Who is that one hope? Jesus, he is the fulfillment, he is the answer. Not any military, not any modern ethno state, Jesus alone is the one hope. That the hope is being part of the tree and you can only be part of the tree The blood of Jesus Christ. So where does that leave us then? To answer the questions that were originally asked. We are not as Christians biblically bound to support the actions of any modern political state. Whether it's the United States or whether it's Israel. That is not what we are called biblically to do. Now, let's talk about it as an American. Supporting Israel makes a lot of sense. Okay, you can easily make the argument why Israel's a great ally to the United States. No question. And Israel is a democratic republic that's sitting there in the middle of Islamic dictatorships. So obviously it would make sense that we would support them. And Israel, if you haven't thought about this, if Hamas isn't targeting the infidel that is the Jew, Hamas would be targeting other people who are infidels as well. Uh, They've got a blood cult devotion to doing this. So Israel is guarding against the growth of this fundamentalist terror that exists. So is there a strategic reason to support Israel? 100%. What I'm telling you is those things that I just listed are not biblical reasons. Christians are not bound biblically to do so. So, does that then mean that we do not pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Is that what we are to conclude? Well, this isn't modern Israel and that's not, or this isn't ancient Israel and that's not ancient Jerusalem, so we don't really have to do that. Okay, no, of course we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I would make eight, nine suggestions to you, and I'll close with this. All right, we made it. Nine suggestions on how we should be praying for everything that's going on. I would recommend this. Number one, pray for those Jewish people. Number one, pray for the Jewish people to find in Jesus their only hope for peace and salvation because that's the only place they're going to find it. Pray for the Jewish people. Number two, pray for the Palestinian Muslims to turn from the lies of Islam, the false religion they belong to, and to embrace Christ as king. That is their only hope for salvation. And they bear the image of Almighty God he desires to graft them into the tree as well. Pray for them. Number three, pray for the safety of our Christian brothers and sisters, the ones who are suffering because of Hamas' attacks in Israel and the ones in Palestine who are undergoing the, the onslaught of Israel in retribution for what Hamas did. There's a lot of Christian suffering there. Pray for them as well. Number four, pray for the grieving families in Israel now who have lost loved ones, believers or not. And pray for the Palestinian uh, people who are now undergoing uh, the same type of sorrow when they lose loved ones. Pray for a cessation of violence in that way. Pray for the defeat of any worldly philosophy or any worldly force that intentionally terrorizes innocent people. Pray that that would be defeated. You can't watch what's happening or what happened to innocent people and as a Christian not be called in prayer for them. Number six, pray for a quick resolution. Pray for a cessation of violence to preserve as many innocent lives as possible. That justice would be carried out and that innocence would uh, uh, would be saved and safe. Number seven, this. Don't overlook this. Pray for wisdom in our leaders. I don't care what you think about the current leadership of this country or Israel or any other country. Pray for them. Pray for God to move in their hearts and their minds so that they would know the things that should be done and that they would ultimately submit to the Lord. Number eight, pray for each other. I see a lot of dissension among Christians over this. Pray that we would not be divided by this. I see a lot of worry amongst Christians. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to me and what's going to happen to my family? Will this happen to come over here? Are people going to be drafted? Is this World War III? Remember who we serve, okay? And remember where we're bound, ...what this is all about. And then number nine, the last thing that I would say to you this morning... ...pray for the words of the Apostle John. Remember at the end of the book of Revelation... ...the Apostle John shares some thoughts in Revelation 22... ...that as I look at the chaos of this world... ...I cannot help but feel the exact same way. We are right now being exposed to the terror... ...and the violence and the hatred of the world... ...and there is only one solution... ...and John wrote about that solution... In the very last chapter of the Christian scriptures, when he said this, He who testifies to all of these things says, Behold, I am coming soon. Amen. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. If you believe like me that the only way the terror and the horror and the pain and the sorrow of this life is fixed is through the coming of Jesus Christ, then pray for our urgency. And pray that he would come quickly and come now. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for that tree. That tree that you established and you cultivated for 2,000 years. And I pray what the offshoot of that tree was. I I thank you for him. I thank you for the resurrected Messiah. I thank you for the, the faithful servants that you had in the ancient nation of Israel that they were devoted to your truth. I thank you that Jesus was devoted to his cause here to redeem all mankind. And I pray now that we would be found faithful as well, that we would go into all of the world to share the one message, and it isn't a geopolitical message, the one message of salvation, salvation through Christ, his wounds, his sacrifice alone. Father, may we be motivated that way. Every time we see the terror and the horror of the world, may our impulse not to be to jump on social media and share our, our hot takes on what it is. May it not be to in instinctively offer up our predictions on the end of the world, but instead may we feel the urgency to share with all men in all places the truth that has set us free and the truth that can set them free. That is our prayer, and we lift it before your throne and the name that is above every other name the only name through whom salvation can be attained, the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, and everyone said, amen. If you folks want to come to Jesus, if you're ready to be grafted into that tree, to join your part in that branch, this is your chance. We offer it every week, and I know a lot of you already have. Maybe you want to rededicate. I don't know what it is, but if God is moving in your heart, please don't wait. Would you come as we stand? and as?